seven-week series on apologetics. And we're going to start today with an introduction to apologetics, trying to understand what it is, what it's not, trying to get a sense for this term that I think there's a fair amount of misunderstanding about. So today, the purpose is to explain what Christian apologetics is and communicate why Christian apologetics matters to you. I'm hopeful that today you will see that the discipline of apologetics, as we're going to define it, promotes evangelism. Notice I didn't say it's equivalent to evangelism. Apologetics promotes evangelism, and it's actually something that's necessary for all Christians. So as we move through this course on apologetics, I hope that you will be better able to take a more robust Christian worldview and apply it by effectively ministering the gospel to others. So that's the point of the class. The point of the class is not to grow pointy heads so that we know a whole bunch of things that we can then use to bang people with. The point of this is for us to understand more clearly our own Christian worldview and use it to effectively minister the gospel to others. So apologetics. What is apologetics? It does not refer to offering an apology or an excuse It's using an older definition of apology. So it's not being apologetic for Christianity in the sense that we're going around doing apologies. Some people today think that that's what we ought to be doing. And there might be some benefit to that in some context. But this is not talking about this. Apologetics is derived from a classical Greek word, apologia, which actually we find in Scripture. To to deliver an apologia means giving an explanation... An explanation, and so my handout does have, you know, fill-in-the-blanks today. That's the first fill-in-the-blank. means giving an explanation to reply and rebut charges that are brought against you. So Socrates, when he was, when he was charged and eventually sentenced to death, when he defended himself before the city of Athens, his response, his defense, is called his apology. So apologetics means, in this context, apologetics means argumentation argumentation to give an explanation or a defense of your position or your worldview or your system. This could sound formal. It could sound intimidating, but it's not supposed to. In fact, we use apologetics every day in our workplaces, our classrooms, our living rooms. Every time we offer a defense of some decision we made, or we cite some examples to contradict somebody else's assertion if if they're misguided or something, every time we defend our position on a subject, we're engaging in apologetics. That's just what it means. It's a defense of of a system, defense of of, of a pattern of thought. Now, what is distinctively Christian apologetics? So here's what our class is going to be about, not apologetics in general even, what's Christian apologetics? We're going to define Christian apologetics as the discipline of offering a defense of and a case for the truthfulness and the reliability of the Christian faith. I'll say it again. Christian apologetics is the discipline of offering a defense of and a case for the truthfulness and reliability of the Christian faith. Or you might say it's giving evidence for its truthfulness. Now, how is apologetics related to evangelism? Apologetics and evangelism. Apologetics differs from evangelism in its emphasis. 
Though the two are interrelated. So evangelism explains and declares the truth of the gospel. Evangelism explains and declares the truth of the gospel. Who Jesus is, what sin is, how we can be saved from eternal death. That's evangelism, explaining and declaring those truths. Apologetics, on the other hand, defends the truthfulness and reliability of those claims. So evangelism explains and declares. It just is a declaration of the truth. But apologetics is a defense of the truthfulness and reliability of those claims. And it actually also provides a critique against false claims. So note that Christian apologetics is both defensive, it defends the truthfulness and reliability of Scripture, it's also offensive, not offensive, but offensive, it's an offensive move, it, uh, it attacks false teaching and unbiblical worldviews. So when you're engaging in apologetics with someone who has unbiblical worldview, you're seeking to counter that worldview, and that's apologetics. By attacking, I absolutely do not mean we try to tear people down, right? And, and, and some people, you know, some people have engaged in apologetics in, in that way, and I, we don't want to be doing that. Um, we are not, our opponents are not other people, right? Other people are not our opponents. Unbelief is our opponent. So when I say attack unbiblical worldviews, that's proactive, thoughtful engagement with others in order to deconstruct the lies that Satan dresses up as truth and call them for what they are, which is error or unbelief. And a Christian apologist is someone who defends the gospel while also critiquing unbelief in an appropriate way. So if you think of apologetics that is something that's done with attitude and swagger to score points on the non-Christians, something like a cable news commentary a commentator would try to do, that's not at all what I'm going to be talking about. But rather, it's an appropriate defense of the Christian worldview. Any questions so far? What it is we're trying to do? Okay. Who are, Christians, who are Christian apologetics for? They're for Christians, they're for non-Christians. First, they're for Christians. So many Christians have heard of apologetics, but some Christians make the mistake of thinking that apologetics is only for philosophically minded believers, or super smart intellectual, intellectual believers, or people with PhDs, or people who live in Washington, D.C. or New York City and are really smart and cultivated, right? That's not also what we're talking about. The, the discipline of Christian apologetics is actually for all Christians. All Christians should be able to articulate the gospel, offer a defense of its reliability and its truthfulness, and thoughtfully engage with unbelievers who are around them. Let me give you four reasons that Christian apologetics is for you, and it's for me, and for all Christians, not just for some special, super-intellectual kind of Christians. Number one, Christians should be able to explain why they have faith in Jesus. And we see this in 1 Peter 3.15, one of my dad's favorite verses. It says this about uh, what we ought to be ready to do. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer 
actually an apology, an apologia, to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So it talks about the use of Christian apologetics, but also the manner in which we do it. This hope that Peter's talking about isn't just being an optimistic person with a sunny disposition. You know, otherwise that would take some of us out, wouldn't it? No, it's the sure and certain hope of eternal life that we have with God, the hope of the resurrection, which is grounded on the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the hope that's in us that we ought to be able to explain to someone else. So why do Christians believe that an ancient, itinerant Jewish rabbi from Nazareth was executed and then got up out of the grave? And why do they orient their whole lives around him? That answer may be part of evangelism, but it's also squarely within the realm of a Christian apologetic. Why do we believe what we believe? That's something we ought to be able to explain. Because non-Christians are going to be looking at our lives. Hopefully, they'll be seeing differences in how we operate versus how they operate or how the world operates. They may ask, what's up? We ought to be able to explain. All right, number two. Christians should be able to critique unbiblical worldviews. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says this, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, our weapons have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. So even though Paul's talking about his own ministry... I think we can see a pattern for how every Christian ought to be engaging with the world and ideas that are opposed to God's word and his authority. So, Christian, you ought to be preparing yourself to wage war, not by being combative with other people, but by challenging and gently critiquing unbiblical ideas that contradict the truth about Jesus' person and his work. You do not need to have a PhD. You do not need to have gone to seminary. It just means that as a Christian, you need to advance the truth of the gospel by clearing away the underbrush of lies and faulty assumptions which clutter the view, someone else's view of the gospel. The reality is, what is the devil the father of? The devil is the father of lies. What are unbelievers going around doing? Believing those lies. We're seeking in apologetics to to clear away those lies so that people can understand the truth of Christ. Alright. Number three. Christians should use their mind and their intellect to the glory of God. So note also that in that same passage, Paul says Christians are to take every thought captive to Christ. And in Matthew 22, Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Part of a Christian's normal discipleship in following Jesus should be to love the Lord our God with our mind and use our intellect that he's given us in evangelism and discipleship and apologetics. Your mind was given to you 
to be part of your whole-bodied worship of God and to understand his truth so that you can also give it to others. It's worth noting that at least in recent decades there has been something of an anti-intellectual tendency within evangelicalism in America particularly. And that's, that's not helpful. There's lots of reasons for this historically, but my point is that for us, being a disciple of Jesus ought not to and does not mean checking our brains at the door. Right? The world would love to paint Christianity versus unbelief as you know, reason versus faith, you know, logic versus stupid belief in some God, right? But we need to realize that our faith is intellectually robust. Our faith is reasonable. It's reasonable. And so we need to not check our brains at the door. We need to use our brains in support of the truth. We don't have to fear pursuing the truth. One of the slogans that the Reformation used, which was the Reformation in one sense was the rediscovery of the reliability and message of the scripture. The Reformers used to say that all truth is God's truth. Why, why would that be? Why is all truth God's truth? Why would you, why would you want to say that? Like, not just scriptural truth, but all truth. Yeah, Dean. Yes, everything that God says is truth. But also, he, he made this world. So everything that is true within this world is a result of his creative work. So all truth is God's truth. Now, that doesn't mean that I need to be uh, as educated in all branches of truth. Like, my wife is a doctor. I don't need to, as part of my Christian discipleship, to, to know all the truth that she knows all the truth that she knows and, and practices as a doctor is God's truth. But I'm not responsible for all of God's truth. I'm specifically responsible for the truth in the scriptures. All of us are to, to know and master the truth in the, the scriptures. But we don't need to fear truth. Because all truth is God's truth. Jesus is the faithful and true witness from Revelation 19 or, of course, from John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So all truth is God's truth. We don't need to worry about seeking reality or seeking truth. Part of our stewardship as God's, as Jesus' disciples is to use our God-given abilities for his glory, our intellect for his glory. We don't trust in our intellect. We don't trust in our reasoning faculties, but rather we submit them to God and his word, and use them for the purpose of bringing him glory. So how do we bring God glory? In this realm, ultimately, the purpose of studying apologetics and worldviews is not to win debates, it's not to sound intellectual, but it's to win hearts by defending the truth of the gospel and challenging false ideas. BJ was recently engaged in a conversation where, with an unbeliever who was struggling with different different parts of gospel truth, and, and, so, and another Christian gave him particular resources in order to be able to help him with that. That was appropriate, because if those things are standing in the way, in some senses, between uh, someone and belief, and their true, actual, legit concerns, then it's appropriate for the mind to be helped by, by showing the reasonableness of the scriptures. All right. 
So we want to convey the truthfulness and the reliability of the gospel. We want to defend it against false teachers, which are out there in droves. We want to follow, we want to defend it against incorrect assumptions and unbelief. We want to help non-Christians question the truthfulness and the reliability of their own beliefs and help them realize that the Christian belief is actually reasonable and rational. All right, number four, another reason. It's for us. Christians throughout history have used apologetics to the glory of God. So in the early church, the book of Acts contains a description of Paul's apologetics. In chapter 17, it says, He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So you get this picture of robust dialogue. He's seeking to show how Jesus is the Messiah. He's seeking to argue with, you know, to to show Jews from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. Some of them are pushing back. He's saying, no, look, let's look at this. And he's reasoning with them. And in the Areopagus in Athens, he does the same thing. We're going to get to that in a second. In the Apostle Paul, he even uh, employs the term apologia in his trial speech to Festus and King Agrippa when he says, I'm making my defense here. I'm making my apologia. And a similar term appears in Paul's letter to the Philippians when he says he's defending the gospel. He's apologying the gospel. He's defending it. So Paul employed this as a means of, of in, in his evangelism. And then throughout church history, many of the early church fathers were noted apologists. There were church fathers like Tertullian and Justin Martyr who would write books to the emperors defending Christianity and saying, this is why Christianity is reasonable. Stop persecuting us. We're not doing, you know, we're not uh, in any way subversive or against the state. We're trying to actually, you know, we're, this, is, this is who Jesus is and this is why we believe in him and this is why the, our belief is reasonable. So, the early church is distinguishing Christian doctrine from the pagan belief around them. And so many of these men uh, wrote uh, brilliant you know, reasonings, defenses of uh, Christians living in the Roman Empire, even to emperors. And then uh, in the Reformation, um, the, there was a lot of uh, argu- uh, apologetic arguments. John Calvin's, uh, Calvin's Institutes was originally presented to the... He wrote it for the king of France to give a defense of the Reformation doctrine. And in modern times, you have notable Christian apologetics who have a different mix of approaches in order to defend the faith. You might think of uh, Mere Christianity by uh, C.S. Lewis, which was given as a series of, of radio lectures during, during or after World War II, honey? During World War II. Um, he's writing this you know, lecture by lecture and actually presenting it out on BBC Radio as a defense of of Christianity. Lee Strobel is a name you might know, Josh McDowell, William Lane Craig, R.C. Sproul. And these apologists' goal has been to base a defense of Christianity on historical and archaeological evidence, theological and philosophical arguments, scientific investigation, so using all sorts of different approaches to defend the reasonableness of Christianity. Now there's, I, I think of three reasons why someone might, a Christian might say, well, I don't I don't like apologetics. I don't want to engage in it. And so we're going to just look at those briefly. Excuses for not practicing apologetics. One, and I think probably the one that I I think of, well, I think they're all valid, but some Christians argue that apologetics denies the role of faith because apologetics offers a way to reason oneself 
into the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to intellectually convince someone of the truthfulness of the gospel, and that's going to, that's going to reason them into heaven. That is not, not what we're saying. Christian apologetics is explaining the reliability of God's truth revealed in Christ, but it is not our reason that saves. It is Jesus who saves. Jesus is the truth that is going to get through, not apologetic truth. Jesus saves. So mere logic and knowledge apart from the active work of the Holy Spirit is insufficient to save a person. Let me ask this. Who knows more about the truthfulness of Christianity and could defend it better, you or the devil? He knows a whole bunch more about the gospel than you do, but not in any kind of saving capacity. So knowledge is not sufficient. Saving faith in the person and work of Jesus involves not simply accepting that what the Bible says is true, nor does it involve just trusting that God exists, but it's actually trusting in, believing in the person of Jesus Christ and having a relationship with him. So we can't argue anyone into into heaven, and nor is apologetics designed to do that. Number two, objection to apologetics. Some some Christians just, we, we struggle with fear of man, right? We fear what others will think of us. If you struggle with fear of man, join the crowd, right? So fear of others' opinion often dissuades Christians from evangelism and apologetics. But it's not like someone who's really fearing man is going to like do evangelism really well, but not apologetics. <laughs> They're not going to do either, right? If you're particularly struggling with the fear of man, I would recommend Mike Criscolo's course seminar back from 2019 on that topic, or uh, Ed Welch's book, When People Are Big and God is Small. That's a resource you might check out just to, as you seek to fight fear of man. Number three, as I alluded to previously, some Christians don't practice apologetics because they can be, we can be intellectually lazy. I fall into this sometimes. How does this work? Like, how does this aspect of the scriptures and this, how does that, ah, I'm just not going to think about it. Um, Rather than taking time to think about important questions um, and search the scriptures and seek for understanding, we just say, I don't have to worry about that. But we are called to love God with our minds and use all of our faculties, including our intellectual ones, to his glory. We oughtn't to be lazy. All right. Who are apologetics for? Who are apologetics for? They're for non-Christians also. They're for Christians. They're for non-Christians. So Christian apologetics is not just a discipline for Christians to practice, but it's also clearly for the practical and spiritual benefit of non-Christians. Number one, Christian apologetics answers non-Christians' questions and removes distractions from belief. So it answers legitimate questions and removes legitimate distractions from belief. Clearly, sometimes non-Christians ask questions just to distract from the uncomfortable truth of the gospel that they are sinful and morally bankrupt. So you've had people who have you've been talking to them about Jesus, they raise objections, what about the Crusades, etc., etc. They're not really, those aren't really truly the reasons that they're, they're giving for why they don't want to believe in Christ. They don't want to believe in Christ because they love themselves, they don't love Jesus, and they don't want to submit to him. But they're going to throw up uh, things that sound legit, but really for them are truly red herrings. Uh, Adolis Huxley, who was a very... Um, 
influential atheistic philosopher in the early 1900s, I thought this was fascinating. He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. And consequently, I assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. So the supporters of this system claimed that it embodied the meaning, the Christian meaning they insisted of the world. There was one admirably simple method to confute these people and justify ourselves in our erotic revolt. We would just deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. So what he wanted was sexual license. He then found reasons to be able to justify it. So that's often happening with with non-Christians. And that's something that apologetics is not going to be able to make much headway against. That's just stubborn unbelief and seeking to self-justify sin. But other times, non-Christians clearly have legitimate questions related to faith in Jesus that apologetics can help to answer. Because if you have important questions that are lingering in your mind unanswered, it can be unsettling. It can be unsettling, and it can be a true barrier to faith. And Christian apologetics involves answering questions and clearing away, again, the the brush of false beliefs that obscures a solid ground of belief in Jesus. And a natural part of educating and instructing non-Christians in a biblical worldview is being prepared to answer their questions. So, pull back to the parenting seminar. Your children all start out as non-Christians. You ought to be seeking, you ought not to be quelling their legitimate questions about the nature of reality and the nature of the scriptures. If you don't know the answer, the answer is not stop asking that question. It should be, Daddy doesn't actually know the answer to that. That's a good question. Let me go find out. Let me go seek uh, a better answer for you. Right? Because you don't want to be dismissing legitimate barriers things that are really actually um, uh, getting in the way of someone putting their faith in Jesus. We need to be prepared to answer these questions. We should not be surprised or threatened by non-Christians' questions. We are, after all, preaching the gospel, a fantastic message that we believe should fundamentally reorder all of our lives. Questions should be expected and welcome. We should welcome questions and not be afraid of them and not not evangelize because we don't have all the answers. All right, number two. Christian apologetics coupled with evangelism points non-Christians to faith in Jesus. So the point of Christian apologetics is not finally to win an argument, but to articulate and defend the reliability of placing one's faith in the person and work of Jesus. It's the discipline that defends the biblical worldview, deconstructs unbelief, and provides a launching pad for enthusiastic evangelism. So if you think, one of the premier examples of this that we see in Scripture is Mars Hill. That's when the Apostle Paul was in Athens. He's troubled that the city is full of idols. He goes into the Areopagus, the, the, the place where discussion was had, and he reasons, he offers a defense of an explanation for the Christian faith. He used, excuse me, he, he did not... Unlike when he was in a Jewish context, he opens the scriptures. And he says, look, Jesus is the Messiah. 
Well, he can't do that with a bunch of Greek philosophers who don't care anything about the scriptures. So he uses reason and cultural examples. They're altered to an unknown God. That's how, what he uses as his jumping off point. This, this unknown God whom you worship, I now declare to you. Right? So he's using, he's using an, a reasoned explanation from their own. He even uses a Greek poem. He says, even, even one, of your, one, one of your poets has got something right about this. Right? Paul explained biblical truths about God and his character and our need for his mercy. He starts out with God as the creator God. He goes at God's, God, everyone's inherent knowledge that God will bring all things to judgment, and he uses that to reason for the reliability of the resurrection. Now, when he gets to the resurrection, they all start laughing at him and calling him insane. Right? It doesn't work. It, you know, in, in that sense, he doesn't... You know, it, it, there are people that come to faith in Athens, but, but his main volley... He's defending the resurrection. They don't accept it. But it doesn't mean that what he was doing wasn't helpful and useful. Right? He's defending the reasonableness of the resurrection. Um, he, even, he even explained our need for God's mercy. The point of all of what he was doing was to communicate in a way that pagans who believed in many gods would have actually ears to hear the good news about the one true God who became man for us in Jesus Christ. So he understood the stakes. Spiritually, apologetics is warfare. It's not a board game. The point of apologetics is to preserve another person's life by helping them understand the truth, not put points on a spiritual scoreboard. Right? So again, if that's your idea about apologetics, that it's like the, the, the sophomore in high school who's just in, in his in late night, munchy session in his dorm room just trying to smash all of his, his, uh, his co-students' arguments and score points. That's not what we're talking about. We're actually seeking to preserve others' lives. In Ephesians 6, Paul says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms who hold these people captive. Right. That's our that's our intended and that's who who our hearts ought to be going out to in mercy. Our opponent is not non Christians. Our opponent is their unbelief and their false beliefs. At an even more fundamental level, our opponent is Satan himself, who opposes God, whose lies and false teaching began all the way back in the garden, and who is the father of lies. So in 1 Thessalonians 2, Satan is described by Paul. He says, The work of Satan is displayed in all sorts of counterfeit miracles and signs and wonders and every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse. Why do they perish? Why do they perish? Why do non-Christians perish? Is it because God didn't choose them? Is it because, you know, Jesus, Jesus and the gospel aren't reasonable? No, they perish because they refused to love the truth, and so be saved. That is why non-Christians will perish. They refuse to love the truth and be saved. So the discipline of apologetics is spiritual work for the good of non-Christians and the glory of God in a real and ongoing spiritual war. We cannot make them love the truth and be saved, but we can present them with a reasonable explanation of the truth. Okay, we're nearly done, but what are any 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 questions about that? So that's why we why 
why apologetics is for Christians, why it's for non-Christians. Any comment, thought, questions on that? Okay, good. What are different apologetic approaches? Historically, Christian apologetics has fallen into one of these two camps. There are a couple other schools as well, but we're gonna, probably the most common ones that we know of are two. The first is popularly known as the evidentialist school, where the focus is on using objective evidence in apologetics. So the evidentialist school, and the second is the presuppositional school, where the focus is on getting at non-Christians' presuppositions apart from the Holy Spirit. I'm going to explain. Let's start first with the evidentialist school. This is the main focus. The main focus of evidentialist apologetics is the idea that we can and should use objective evidences or, or proofs, such as God has given us a well-created order. That's part of our proof and persuasion in apologetics. So R.C. Sproul is a well, was a well-known evidentialist in some, of his, in some of his thinking. For example, creation testifies to a creator, and we should use that belief as part of our proof, proof for God's existence. Or you might think of Lee Strobel's A Case of the Case for Christ or The Case for Easter. The Case for Easter, for instance, examines how there is strong evidence supporting the credibility of Jesus' resurrection. We can't prove beyond a shadow of a doubt to a non-Christian that Jesus rose from the dead, what we can do is lay out convincing evidence that shows that it's reasonable to believe that he rose from the dead. Okay, so you're laying out evidence in support of the truth of Christianity. That's the evidentialist school. The presuppositional school, that, was, that, that name that is most associated with that is Cornelius Van Til out of Westminster, Presuppositionalists, okay, so presuppositionalists are those foundational uh, things that you're starting with in your worldview out of which all the rest of your beliefs flow. So the, the most basic understandings of your heart and how all that trickles out to flesh out everything that you believe. So, you know, one basic presupposition is a presupposition for everything I believe is that there is a God. That's, my, that's a fun foundational presupposition. Everything that I believe flows out of that. Obviously, for an atheist, his foundational belief is that there is no God. And all of everything out of that, he thinks it flows logically out of that. Now, we'll get to, we'll get to why that's, you know, what, what presuppositional apologetics does. So, presuppositionalists, where am I? There am I. Would stress that evidence does not ultimately convince unbelievers to follow God. Right? The evidentialists, I don't think, would dispute that. Evidence alone is not enough to get unbelievers to follow God because people are governed by their presuppositions, which, apart from the Holy Spirit's regenerating work, are naturally oriented against God. So why does an unbeliever reject the resurrection out of hand, and it doesn't matter how many pieces of evidence you put out there, he rejects uh, the resurrection out of hand, because there are no miracles. No one rises from the dead because there isn't a miraculous force in the universe. There isn't a, a force in the universe other than natural forces, and natural forces explain that no one can rise from the dead, and therefore Jesus didn't rise from the dead. It comes out of his presupposition that there is no God. 
Right? My presupposition that there is a God gives me every reason. If there's, a, if there's a creator God who actually made the world and actually acts in his creation, doesn't it make sense that it's possible that a man could rise from the dead? That stems from my presupposition. Um, so, but a presuppositionalist says, hey, guess what? Apart from the Holy Spirit's work, people are naturally oriented away from God in their presuppositions. So we can't definitively prove or evidence the gospel using using proof. Instead, we should seek to show how only the biblical worldview, only the biblical worldview is consonant with reality. Right? Because reality is whose reality? Reality is God's reality. And so, understanding God's reality can't flow out of bad soil. Right? So, for instance, um, shoot, I had an example and I just lost it. If it comes back, I'll, I'll come back. Um, it was a good one. What was it? It wasn't in my notes. Oh, just the idea that a presuppositionalist would start to say, listen, you don't believe in God, and yet you believe that murdering me would be wrong. Let me, let me try and explain why working from your presupposition that there is no God and that there's no meaning at the heart of the universe actually leads to a, a moral framework where it would be perfectly fine for you to murder me. Right? It's saying your presuppositions don't actually... You know in your heart that murdering me would be wrong, but your presuppositions actually can't get you there. Whereas mine can get me there because I believe in a creator God that tells me what to do and one of the things he tells me not to do is not to murder you. That's presuppositional apologetics. All right, our core seminar is going to try and blend these two approaches. It will argue that we should use evidences and proofs, again, I say proofs, as we make the case for Christian faith, and that no matter how good our proofs and persuasions are, no one will believe God and the gospel apart from his saving work. So we have been contrasting various worldviews in recent... uh, No, we're not contrasting these two apologetics approaches during our course. We're saying that the two can work together to form a good framework uh, to defend uh, the truthfulness of Christianity. So what apologetics questions are we going to be considering? So in the next weeks, here are some of the topics we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at the existence of God, the reasonability of the existence of God. This is not in any particular order. We might go in a different order. But the existence of God, the problem of evil. Why is there evil in the world? The reliability of the Bible, the evidence for the resurrection, some differences between Christianity and other world religions, so other worldviews, and then profitable apologetic conversations, how to actually have profitable conversations with non-Christians. So hopefully the whole course is going to equip you to better defend the truth of the gospel in order to give you more confidence, more confidence to lean into evangelism, more confidence to boldly share the truth of the scriptures with those who are around you. All right, fire hose off. Right? I know that when I teach fire hose, then it then your questions don't necessarily come as quickly because you're like you just kept going. So now I'll take a long Keith McClyman's pause <laughs> and say what questions or thoughts do you have, or maybe topics that you'd like to see addressed. I, we won't deviate too much from our 
syllabus, but. Missy. I saw her hand. Sorry, I just had some comments. Yeah. One thing I loved that you said was. Speaking with a little louder. You were kind of talking about um, not leaving your brain at the door. And that just speaks to me because I feel like not only is it an argument of the world that we just blindly believe, um, but I just feel like intellect and science and facts are all supported by the Bible, all supported by truth. So that really spoke to me. The other thing I was thinking when you were doing reasons or claims Christians give not to practice the first one, you know, the reasoning oneself, and the scripture of faith comes by hearing just came to mind. And so, you know, the evangelism and the apologetics is just more of the gospel and more facts for them to hear, for then the Holy Spirit to do his work. And then the last thing I was thinking, because apologetics is kind of like a little interest of mine, is that I think that before we even enter into an apologetic type conversation with somebody, we have to differentiate whether or not they are a true skeptic or if they are a cynic. Because if they're just there to argue and they really don't want to know any truth, they don't really want the answers to these questions, you'll never you'll never win the argument. It will be circular and go nowhere and just be frustrating. Yeah. The difference between arguing, I like that distinction, the difference between arguing or discussing, discoursing, arguing makes it sound like you're mad at each other and it doesn't have to be. Hopefully it's not. But if you're dealing with a cynic who is, is they're, they're going from a different presupposition. They're, they have reasons that they're, that they're settled against Christianity and so they're going to just be very interested in, they're, they're not really interested in having a dialogue Dialogue is less, you know, dialogue is less useful in that situation, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't go rounds and rounds and rounds and rounds and rounds with, with someone like that. Um, a better approach might be to just say, would you be, if, you, if you're so confident in this, would you be willing to read the Bible with me? And then if the answer is just no, then... Yeah, but see, you're, you're looking at different approaches. But if someone's truly saying, I have these intellectual problems with Christianity, that's a profitable conversation. Beach. Yeah, I would just say that the glorious benefit of apologetics for us as Christians in that our faith is actually strengthened. We just get a, a, a bit more of a sense of like, oh yeah, this is, this is really reasonable. Um, so we can confidently move past just because the Bible says so. Um, although we never want to be, we, we want to leave that and be happy with that. But there doesn't need to be a fear that if we if we have additional things other than that, then you know, might we be exposed or a faith be shown to be a sham? No, it's actually the opposite. Our confidence in the Bible increases. Our confidence in the truth of the Christian worldview increases. Uh, the strength of our faith increases. So it's just it's it's fun to think about apologetics because it's a it's a faith-building exercise. It is. It is helpful not to get the cart before the horse. We fundamentally believe the gospel because God's word says, because God has told us that what it says is true, right? And so I don't believe the Bible because I go to outside truth and have 50 reasons for it, but believing that the Bible is the word of God, trusting it, trusting in the God who wrote it, then 
I'm encouraged when 50 facts outside of it also support its truthfulness. to study God's word, not Lee Strobel. But Lee Strobel can be helpful as we, seek to, um, as we seek to understand the word. I'm interested. Which of these ones, let's say, just say, the existence of God, the problem of evil, the reliability of the Bible, the evidence for the direct resurrection, what's, what are some that you're especially perhaps eager to, to hear a conversation about? Any one of those especially interest you, Kev? Yeah, I would say the reliability of the Bible. I mean, when I've discussed things with my brother in the past, he just thinks that the Bible is a man-made <laughs> not inspired. By God, so. Yeah. yeah so, I mean, so if that's a, legit, that's a legitimate hang-up, then understanding, well, hey, bro, here's some reasons why the Bible actually is consistent and reliable. Yeah, for me, just talking with um, your generation and down, um, probably not even your generation, my kids' generation and down, is the problem. I'm not part of it. You're saying I'm not part of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm eight years older than your daughter. I know. You see? You're After me. Profitable. Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. If we're going to admit. Um, profitable apologetic conversations. Because they're very willing to talk, but they're also willing to argue and not um, not really. It's just to argue to argue. I think there's also in in as our culture shifts from a from a modern to increasingly postmodern and even whatever's beyond that, the the. Argument, logic and argumentation means less and less in our society, and what we feel is more and more, it's not so much, you know, so I would say that over time, evidentialist apologetics is probably becoming less, uh, less effective, because if what I feel isn't consonant with the logic, it doesn't ma- matter how logical it is, my feelings are always going to still trump. That's why I think pre- I tend to le- I tend to prefer presuppositional apologetics because I'm more interested in you know I'm more interested in getting and I'm very uh, and I'm totally pessimistic at anybody's ability to since I totally believe no one can be reasoned in or reason themselves into the kingdom uh, I tend to lean in the presuppositionalist direction um, because ultimately we're relying on God's Spirit to convince people of the truthfulness of His Word. Go ahead, Josh. Oh. The biggest one that, I, that I'm interested in is the difference between Christianity and other world religions. Because almost every time, almost every time that I've tried to share the gospel with someone, their biggest hang-up has been like, well, have you ever tried any of the other religions? Okay. They're great, and all the religions are the same. Yeah. And it doesn't matter. Religion, is, a lot of them have said, yeah, religion is great for society. I'm like, no, no, that's not the point. Kevin? Ask someone Paul's argument in the area of that was more <clears throat> yes, I would. Yeah, he's arguing. You, you don't believe in a creator's image. 
that you believe in a single creator God, and I'm here to tell you who he is. Yeah. All right. Uh, I yes, last question. Are we going to have a list of books that you... I can be sure. I'm sure I, I'm sure I can come up with one. It's not my forte, but I'm sure. I it is BJ's forte. He says no. <laughs> All right. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we want to... We want to Oh, God, we actually want to be effective evangelists. We want to be uh, able to have good dialogue with non-Christians so that we can see them as they respond to the truth of the gospel. We want to see them come to faith. Uh, Lord, that's our heart. That's why we would want to study these things, uh, not just to, to gain intellectual brownie points, which you don't give out intellectual brownie points, so that's futile. Uh, Lord, we want and desire for non-Christians to see the truth. Lord, help us through the course of this course to uh, move in that direction. In Jesus' name, amen.